This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. On our time together this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question to ponder. The question is, how do you deal with all the uncertainty in life? How do you deal with with all of the uncertainty in the times that we're living in today? How about you? But um, I follow uh, politics the way that some guys follow sports. Right? I like to stay engaged, what's happening locally, at state level, federal level, internationally. And uh, so in this past week, you know, in the days leading up to the elections, I was like checking the news, it seemed like all the time, <laughs> you know, looking for, you know, hints, signs, you know, what's going to happen next? I was, you know, looking at polls, I went out for early voting, you know, all that kind of stuff, all because I was wondering, you know, and uncertain about how things were going to now. Well, Tuesday rolled around, and uh, I know that the earliest polls don't start closing on the East Coast until 6 p.m. our time. But did that stop me from, like, checking the news, looking for updates that weren't there? Of course not, right? You know, I'm, I'm, like, watching, and, and, you know, I went to bed that evening still wondering what was going to happen. And so when my alarm went off, at 5.10 a.m., it was like an impulse to snatch my phone and like find out, you know, what happened, right? Because I wanted to put an end to all the uncertainty. And, you know, maybe you felt the same way. Maybe you just wanted to put an end to all the political ads. I don't know. There were a lot. But what I do know is that we don't like uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty in life. We don't enjoy feeling like we're in the dark or out of the loop. So we find ways to deal with it, to alleviate it, or to avoid it. So that we at least can uh, maintain some kind of a feeling like we know what's going to happen next. This is why parents start giving teenagers cell phones, right? They wanted to know, right, when that kid was coming home and, you know, who they were with, what they were doing. At least that was the original intention, at least. And this is the same reason why we take our retirement dollars and we put them into mutual funds, right? We're trying to maintain a certain amount of, of certainty about what our retirement future might look like. We're, we're trying to, uh, you know, outweigh our gains and losses. Later today, if we're watching a, a nail-biter of a football game, which we won't, but if we were, we're not going to get off that couch until we know what happens, right? We're not moving. Come what may. It might be time to go. We're not leaving. <laughs> we like to know what happens in the end. Other times, you know, whether it's relational uncertainty, or maybe uncertainty about our future at work, or uncertainty about our health, we want to uh, end any of those kinds of times of prolonged uncertainty. We don't like them so much so, they haven't you said, or, or you've heard somebody else say that line, where, where, where they say, I don't care what the answer is, I just want to know. 
right? We dislike prolonged uncertainty so much so that we would be willing to put up with bad news if it meant any news, any kind of an answer. That's how much we don't like uncertainty. And certainly other times we attempt to just avoid creating uncertainty by avoiding certain conversations. Right? Thanksgiving's just around the corner. You won't be having that conversation about the election, right? You're, you don't know how that conversation would turn out, go over. So you avoid certain kinds of uncertainty. Let me ask you again. You yourself, how do you handle uncertainty in life? What's driving your responses to those kinds of moments and your choices in them? What is that? I want to show us this morning an insight from a piece of Scripture that's set in a very messy time in Israel's history. Um, a time in which uh, not only is it messy in the exact passage, but it's actually probably written with an original audience who was dealing with a very uncertain future. And I believe that through this passage, we're actually offered something as followers of Jesus Christ, in how we can handle uncertainty. How we can handle even some of the hardest aspects of living in a world full of uncertainty. We're going to see it from a passage in 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Uh, in this passage, we have a scene with King David. And David is passing the royal baton on to his son Solomon. In the chapter right before this, they have just averted a coup. Uh, and right after this is going to be a time of bloodshed. Now we are fairly used to in uh, the West, in a Western democracy, of the peaceful passage of power. But in most nations, and in Israel included, especially in this day and time, there would oftentimes be instead a cycle of bloodshed every time a new regime would come into control. That's what's going on here. It's happening, this text is happening after Solomon's been anointed as king of Israel, but before he's firmly established his kingdom. And so what's happening is this question of what kind of king is this guy going to be? In the midst of this unrest, King David looks at his 29-year-old son, which is my age, by the way, just in case you're curious, um, and Solomon uh, is receiving his famous last words from King David. It says this, verse 2 of chapter 2. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish His word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now what's going on in this passage is that you can actually hear an echo. An echo of the words of Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and now of David. As they are giving this charge to a leader that's coming in after them. 
a charge to be strong, to obey the Lord. Now, what's going to follow this piece of the charge is what you might call some very practical advice. Verse 5, David says, Moreover, moreover, you also know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me and how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that was shed in war, putting the blood of war on his belt around his waist and on his sandals of his feet. It's giving this picture that this guy Joab was covered in innocent blood. It goes on, verse 6. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Shoal in peace. The lamb die in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there was also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death by the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man, you will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Shoal. Wow. Can you imagine those being your dad's last words to you? Obey God, and don't forget to whack that guy, right? This is more of a godfather than a father scene, right? I know you're wondering, this is going to be an interesting sermon. Some interesting applications coming out of it. As we start stepping back from this story, you can, you can first look at this text at the, the micro level of, of what's just simply being described. As you keep stepping back, you can look at it in terms of how it fits in the book of 1 Kings. Why is this story here to begin with? As you keep stepping back, you can step all the way back to today. On this side of the cross, what does this story mean? When we look at it from that first level, you can see that the most immediate uncertainty, like I mentioned before, is dealing with what kind of a king would Solomon be? So David, uh, his advice to Solomon on how to handle this time of uncertainty, of unrest, and, and, and his reign is to obey God and to take out your enemies, right? In a nutshell. As we keep stepping back, though, to the next level, from just the description of what's happening to how it fits within this book, we know already that Solomon blows it, right? In fact, the the original audience of this text was more than likely uh, receiving it and reading it in Babylon, in exile, because Solomon and his line of heirs that followed after him didn't keep the charge of obeying God in this text. We know from reading it later on, Solomon doesn't pursue the Lord with all of his heart. Instead, he only pursues him with half of it. So, can you imagine... Reading this book of 1 Kings, which 1 and 2 Kings is originally one book describing to Israel how things went wrong. Can you imagine reading this text knowing that they're going to blow it? Knowing that they're going to fail and because of it, your nation gets destroyed. 
It'd be like watching, you know, when you watch the movie Titanic, you know what happens in the end. Doesn't matter how it's beginning, you know the boat sinks. You're just finding out how it happened. That's what's going on here. That your line of kings appears to have failed because they didn't obey the charge of obedience. This obedience standard that's set up here in verse 4 actually becomes the standard by which every king that follows in the books are measured by of whether or not they sought the Lord with all of their heart. And eventually, it's this sinful failure that lands uh, the people of Israel in the most uncertain time imaginable with the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the exile from their home in 586 B.C. Because they didn't keep the charge in these verses. As we step back then, all the way back to today, with all of our uncertainties, all of our unknowns, our unrests, we actually, on this side of redemption history, can much more clearly see that we actually become recipients of good news through this text. We become recipients of good news because we can see that God was carrying out His plan. God was carrying out a plan in the midst uh, of a time of uncertainty that we can see that in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus, heir to the throne of David, who perfectly fulfilled the covenant of obedience spoken of here. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly sought the Lord with all of His heart, all of His soul, all of His mind, and all of His strength we can see that in the midst of the most uncertain of times, God was certainly bringing about His plan. In the midst of uncertainty about Solomon, uncertainty about David's one-part vengeful, one-part justice requests here, in spite of a nation exiled from their home, in spite of a failure, in spite of it all, God is accomplishing His end. His plan was undeterred by sin and the fickle uncertainty of people. God's promise marches straight through our unknowns to His plan. See, the awesome sovereignty of God means that we are freely making choices while at the very same time, God is sovereignly bringing about His plan of which nothing is escaping and nothing is thwarting. So that for us, we have example after example in Scripture of people living in the most uncertain of times, living with bloodshed and national upheaval and more, where we don't see how things could ever work out. And yet, and yet, in the midst of that, we have the testimony of Scripture that in all things, God is working. The nations, right, just like in this passage, they may rage. Elections may or, not, may, may or may not go the way you want them to. Stock markets may or may not go the way you want them to. Kids may not head in the direction you intended. Uncertainty in life may seem everywhere, but Jesus stands as the ultimate testimony that God is working all things together for good. Amen? So the encouraging insight that then we're offered from this text is to live in the confidence of a bigger plan. 
that we can live in the, in the confidence of a bigger plan. See, God's plan, it doesn't just stop with David or Solomon or Israel or his sending of Jesus. God's plan includes your life. It includes my life. God's plan includes our lives. This means that nothing that happens in your life, nothing has escaped his attention. God has a purpose, and it's good. And he is bringing it about through your life and mine. That is meant to be an incredibly comforting truth to our souls that in the midst of heartache and joy, God is good, and there is more going on in your life than meets the eye. The comforting truth here is offered uh, in the midst of this uncertainty of Solomon, it's offered to him. In the sense that God's word through David is being spoken to him. It's offered to Israel in exile in the sense that the book of 1 Kings is being offered to them. And it is meant to inspire confidence in us today in how we live. There's a story about the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, As it was being built over the San Francisco Bay, it was being built in the early uh, 20th century. And the bridge was falling woefully behind schedule because men that were working on the bridge kept falling and plummeting to their deaths. And so the, the schedule was way, way behind and the enormous cost from being behind was rising. And, uh, and so eventually, uh, the engineers and so forth proposed a plan to erect this giant net under the bridge. Can you imagine how that business meeting went down, by the way? I've got this idea. I'm thinking a big net, okay, right under it. You know that first guy that proposes the idea always gets made fun of. But they did it. They finally went for it in spite of the enormous cost that this net was going to pose. That finally, uh, in spite of all that, they installed it, and the progress was hardly interrupted from that point on. You know, a, a worker or two would fall, would fall into the net, and would ultimately be saved. And ultimately, the time lost from fear was made up in the faith in the net. See, friends, the more confident you are in God's bigger plan for your life, the freer you become to live. The more confident you are, the freer you are to live. So that then we have to ask the question, what does that look like? In handling life's uncertainty with confidence, what does that look like? As a follower of Jesus, living in the the safety net of God's bigger plan, that no matter what happens, that ultimately God is working all things together for good, the natural result of that kind of confidence, that kind of faith, it isn't exactly a shocker. It's greater obedience. See, confidence and obedience are linked together. They are linked together. Because think of it this way. Look back at verse 3 of the text. This verse, you know, again, this is what Solomon is hearing. It is, take, take the char- keep the charge of the Lord, your God, walking in His ways, <clears throat> keeping His statutes and His commandments, His rules and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may what? You may prosper. Now think of this. 
the more that Solomon was convinced of this, the more confident he was that this was true, which by the way, this is, this is linked to the kings of Israel, the, the covenant promises with David and, and the land of Israel and so forth. But think of it this way. The more confident he was in that, the more he would pursue it, right? The more he would pursue living for that. But the true, this principle is true for us today. See, the more confident we are in God's bigger plan for us, the more we're willing to live into it. The more we're willing to obey. Think of it this way. I remember the uh, first time I went to Chicago. I was moving there to go to school, and my dad came with me. And so we had the idea that we were going to go up in the Sears Tower. And so uh, we went up there, and they had just installed those glass boxes that let you step out of the building, right? And so, you know, we had this great idea that we were going to step out in there. Really, I think he had the idea I was going to step out there and he was going to watch. Uh, and I remember, uh, you know, trying to step out there. And one part of my mind's going, this is going to be really cool. And the other part of my mind's going, are you nuts? <laughs> Don't do it, stupid. <laughs> I remember my foot all by itself kind of like tapping its way out there as I kind of skirted out onto the glass. See, I was trying, my foot was trying to find confidence that this thing was going to do what it was supposed to do. That this thing that was supposed to work was going to work. Same thing is true in our life. We are looking, we are testing, we are wondering whether or not God's plan, what is supposed to work for life, will work. Our confidence has a direct correlation to our obedience. Our confidence in God's plan that, that we uh, are called to live out these expressed intentions for our life is directly connected to our obedience. In other words, my attempts to obey are not only linked to my knowledge of what God wants me to do, but also my confidence in Him and His plan. The same is true for you. And that's where the rubber really meets the road. The truth is, is that we're not all that confident in His plan, that it's going to work out. We're not all that confident that His design for our satisfaction is going to work out. We're not all that sure of things. Whether or not God is good in light of the plan that we seem to be on, we're not sure. We're not all that different than Solomon who only kept this charge half-heartedly. Given our passage today with David advising Solomon on how to deal with his enemies, I think that this brings up uh, an area where we have a lot of questions about, a lot of struggle to have certainty with God's plan. So I want to address that, that struggle that we have in the area of how to deal with our enemies. How to deal with our enemies. I know sometimes we can even struggle with the concept of who really is our enemy. I mean, we probably don't have a, a list of uh, names that we'd like to be removed from planet Earth, right? Probably, right? But rest assured, you have enemies. And it's not that hard to figure out. Just think about who it is that you don't like. Who it is that you don't like. In Matthew 
uh, chapter 538, Jesus speaks some words that are prescriptive to life in contrast to the descriptive words that we have about David's advice here. Matthew 5.38, Jesus said these words, You have heard it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile with him, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now when we read a passage like that, and our mind goes into lawyer mode, where we are following up every sentence with, yeah, but... Or, you know, it sounds like that, but it doesn't really mean that. It's a sign that we just want to get ourselves off the hook from obeying God. Because in this area, we don't really have a lot of confidence in God's plan. That it's going to work out. That He knows what He's doing. That it's for our good. And by all means, there are uh, some certain situations where giving is not loving. There are plenty of times where we can recognize easily the difference between forgiving and trusting. They're not the same thing. In the passage, it's not a one-for-one -one comparison with David's words because David is representing the government. And Scripture tells us the government has been given the sword. So it's not a one-for-one. -one. There's considerations here. But when your mind lawyers up, it's a sign that we don't trust Jesus' words, that they're for our good, and that He has a bigger plan that He's carrying out, and that we're a part of it. When we're only interested in avoiding the uncertainty that this passage brings up in our life, rather than wanting to live into it with the confidence of a bigger plan, it points to just one more area of our uncertainty about God's plan. But let me ask you, maybe it's not this. Maybe it's something else. But what is it that pokes a hole in your confidence in God? What is it for you? What are those times for you when you lose that confidence in God's plan? Maybe it's after, you know, a tragedy. Maybe it's uh, when you're looking at someone else's life and then looking back at yours. Maybe it's just when life is frustrating. A couple weekends ago, I was, uh, I was watching our, our kids while my wife was out at, at an event. She was gone for the afternoon. I was being a good husband. I was following the schedule, all right? I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing, you know, um, you know, presiding over homework, changing the diaper, so on and so forth. Well, I had two of our 
boys upstairs in, in their room, just like the schedule told me to, okay? And uh, eventually, you know, I thought, you know, I better go check on them. I walk into that room, and I kid you not, there is a stream of water spraying across the room. They had somehow managed to crack a pipe. Don't ask me how they did it, but they did it. Right? What followed looked like a scene from the Three Stooges. You know, I'm, I'm grabbing towels, I'm shutting off the water, I'm, you know, I'm calling Adele, right? I'm, I, I'm stubbing my toe, I'm disciplining kids. See, what you have to know about me is that plumbing, I hate it. It's the worst. If you put a hole in a pipe, you put a hole in my confidence. Because what starts to run through the back of my head is I'm going to have to fix this all by myself. <laughs> I'm on my own. And I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but what followed wasn't pretty. And it certainly was one of those times when an area of life threatens my little idol of control, which sometimes shows up. In the end, I had an apology to give for some of the words that came out of my mouth. Some of the attitude that was coming out. But what's it for you? What are those moments when those words start running through the back of your head? What is it that pokes a hole in your confidence in God's plan? Because whatever it is, is the place where you need to bring this truth to bear this morning. We need to train our minds and our lips to repeatedly bring back the truth of God's plan, that He's in control, and that no amount of broken situations filled with uncertainty, no amount of failure can ever thwart His plan. He's in control. So turn and press through the problem with confidence in His bigger plan. That obedience is best. Jesus modeled what this looked like for us when he, on the cross he prays for his enemies, declaring, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So when fear is rearing its ugly head in your life, while you're waiting for the estimate about the car repair, while you're wondering where your son or daughter is at with God, while you're in the lobby of the hospital, Wherever it might be, you need to speak back the words of truth. God's in control. And I can rely on Him because He's good. This is what I had to pause and do last Tuesday morning when I'm reading the election results and my stomach's twisting one way and then it's twisting the other way. I had to remind my heart that there's a bigger plan. There's a bigger plan plan. And you and I, we can live in the confidence that comes from that truth. Because we have a heavenly Father and His famous last words in the book of Revelation are, Behold, I am making all things new. And the confidence of that promise, it's available to you. It's available to me. It's ours for the taking. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your promise. 
Lord, we thank you for your words. Lord, we thank you that you bear us up in the middle of life's uncertainties. Lord, we want to come back to you, Lord, looking for your mercy and your grace, knowing that we fall woefully short, that we are horribly imperfect, and yet your goodness, your loving kindness has shown us that in the midst of all the uncertainties that we have, you are certainly bringing about your plan. So God, we announce our trust in you. We surrender the moments and the times when we have forgotten you. We've let our confidence be sabotaged by the problems that we're facing. And we come, Lord, afresh under you. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, amen.